0: I'm Christine. And I'm Alan. We'd like to thank you for tuning in to our discussion this week.
1: Our hope is that we'll share some information that you'll find helpful.
0: So now we invite you to join us as we together
1: listen listen for for the the word.
0: word. Hi everybody. It's good to have you with us today. We have a fun one today. We are going to be talking about the parable of the talents. This is from Matthew uh, chapter 25 verses 14 through 23 and we all know this parable it's kind of uh, well known and understood in the church and even assumed in terms of what the interpretation it's going to be it is the one where we say well done good and faithful servant and yet as we dig into this particularly within our context of Matthew we might want to take another look at it so I'm going to just start off with Alan and say hey Give us some background on this parable.
1: Well, again, we're in this chapter where um, Matthew has these parables that follow up Jesus' um, discourse on the coming of the Son of Man. And and the parables in Matthew 25 all have that kind, because of that setting, they all sort of have that kind of implication or at least that kind of connotation. They seem to be set in the context of, of uh, judgment and um, final rewards and that kind of thing. And so the parable of the talents is right in the middle of that. And um, <sighs> You know, if you're like me, you grew up hearing about the parable of the talents, and the point of it is that you've been given these talents, you've been given these spiritual gifts, you've been given these abilities that you're supposed to invest for the sake of the kingdom of God. And if you do so, then you know you can look forward to the commendation on the final day. Well done, good and faithful servant. Uh, unfortunately, that's a, a f- sort of I would call it a sanitized version of the parable, (laughs) because it doesn't really pay very careful attention to the details. The first thing is that we're talking about a talent, and a talent, or the Greek word talenton, refers to a large sum of money, 6,000 denarii. Which, if you divide by 365, that's about 16 years' worth 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 of, of uh, average manual worker wages. Uh, so so tr- you know transpose that into our our funds however you like, you know whatever the minimum wage is times 40 um, times 52 and and times 16 and that's that's the number you'll get. And I, I once did it. I know I once did it for one of my seminary classes, and it was like two billion dollars or something like that. So
0: even a single talent is worth a lot of money. This is not one talent. One
1: talent is sixteen years worth of just kind of how we
0: interpret it. Oh, well, he just got one like one little gold. That's an incredible fortune. That's an incredible fortune. Huge fortune. So that's that's an interesting little note right there from how we might read it. Is well, he was only given one little. (laughs) Bit of gold. <laughs> None of this was little.
1: None of this yeah, was exactly. little. A talent okay. was huge. Huge. A talent was huge, and so um, I think we, we shouldn't call this the parable of the talents. We should call this the parable of the fortune funds because that's really what we're talking about here. These guys have been given huge wealth, a huge amount of wealth to manage, just like um, a, an investment manager would manage a port. Uh, you know, someone's huge portfolio. Can you imagine ten? Talents, that's 160 years worth right. of wages. That's it's an incredible fortune. So, so, that's the first thing. You know, we're not talking about our abilities in the service of God. This is a story about a master who entrusts his fortune to some of his stewards to manage for him in his absence. Um, now, the other part of it is the whole structure of the parable the whole structure of the parable is about rewards. You earn five fortune funds. You get to keep all 10 as a reward. Mm -hmm. You earn two more fortune funds. You get to keep all four as a reward. So the rewards match the deeds. You know, you, Mm -hmm. you, you, you know, it's a a matter of what you earn. You get what you get, Mm -hmm. what you earn. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, unfortunately, there are a lot of people in our society who that's their basic view of life. Exactly. You get what you deserve. You get what you earn.
0: And I think many people read it this way because it, and somehow it it uh, affirms their right. kind of, uh, secular view of the world. Right. So it's just like, oh, this is a good affirming uh, uh, parable for my way of life.
1: Yes, yes. Which the, I don't think... You know, God, God, apple pie, and the American flag, you know, we, and, and capitalism. We got it all all together right mm-hmm. there in, in this parable. But, you know, un, you know, the downside applies to any underachievers, you know, because if you're like the servant who got one fortune and did nothing with it for fear of losing it, you don't even get to keep that, and what's more, you get thrown out and punished. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, we already ought to be raising some question marks cuz does this really sound like Jesus?
0: Not not from what we have learned. No, N- not at
1: all. I mean not from not from what I would say. But, you know, the thing about it is is if that's really, you know, Jesus is telling these parables as as the kingdom is like. And he doesn't say the kingdom is like literally in this parable, but he, but he says it it's it is like. Mm-hmm. So the the implied reference is that these are parables of the kingdom. If, if this is what the kingdom of heaven is like, then God is more like a ruthless prophet here. He's more like Michael Milligan, you know, making a fortune on junk bonds than a loving creator and redeemer. And, um, you know, in that version of the kingdom, then Matthew twenty five twenty nine applies. applies. To all those who have, more will be given, and they will have an abundance. Yeehaw! But from those who have nothing, even what they have will be taken away. and That sounds
0: more like our world than the kingdom.
1: Well, it does. And it is much more like our world than the kingdom. You know, if the master of these servants is truly supposed to represent God or Jesus, then the parable presents us with a very serious problem. The third servant... Mm -hmm. And, and sort of enunciates this problem very perfectly master i knew you were a harsh man reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you did not scatter seed is that really our image of god
0: oh i mean we just had those parables of the sower right you know. so uh, what a strange yes what a strange twist here it is
1: very strange mm-hmm in fact, uh, Ulrich Lutz and Helmut Kester in their uh, Hermeniya Commentary on Matthew, they say it this way. When the rapaciousness of a capitalist becomes a parable for the kingdom of God, God becomes a God of the rich and the clever since he acts just like them. And that's not the biblical image of God. Uh, if, If the parable of the talents is not intended to be ironical Then the kingdom of heaven is about a strict system of earning rewards and there's not much room for grace or forgiveness or mercy. And you know, (laughs) we better, we better get out there like some of the other, you know, there's some religious groups in this country that are, that are motivated by that.
0: Absolutely. We better get out
1: there and we better start beating on doors and we better start getting our, getting our merits chalked up and, and because we're way behind.
0: (laughs) Then all of a sudden we've, for those who are Reformed tradition, you've just jumped right back into works righteousness.
1: Yes, I mean, yes. Oh,
0: if I do this, I can gain my way to heaven. Right. Oh, wait a minute, that is not about. Um, that's not about the grace. And,
1: and I don't. I don't mean to. I don't mean to pick on the Jehovah's Witnesses, but I've interacted with a Jehovah's Witness and talked about, you know, the idea of grace and the idea that. The, the promise that God loves us no matter what, and that that our salvation is secure in God's hands no matter what, and and the guy and this was many many years ago, like almost forty years ago, and and uh, but the the guy's response was something like, "Wow, that would be nice if you could if you could know that you were you know you had wow. you had that kind of security, wow, and you know uh, you know if if this is not an ironical parable, then we're in bad shape." I think. Uh, and, and you know, the, the reason why this grates on me and on, I think, should grate on most of us is that none of this sounds like the God who blesses the poor in spirit, who blesses those who mourn, who blesses the meek, who blesses those who hunger and thirst for God's justice. That's the Sermon on the Mount, right? Right, right. Uh, it doesn't sound much like the God who freely gives the blessings of sun and rain to all alike, good and bad. Right. It doesn't sound much like the God who feeds and clothes those who have little faith.
0: Well, exactly, and right after this is all of that. What truly I tell you, just as you did it to one of the least right, least, right, this famous Matthew twenty-five. This the same chapter. I know. That we get I know. this. I know. So do you buy into one and not the other? Um, so I, I think we have to look more carefully at the parable. Yeah, to yeah. Fit but, uh, that's more the thing.
1: You know, if we if if we're reading. If we understand Jesus in light of the Sermon on the Mount, then it's hard for us to really endorse this parable literally. You know, It's hard for us not to take it ironically. Um, one of the articles I, I read um, contrasts the violent outcomes in these end times parables of Matthew's gospel with the nonviolent moral vision uh, and grounded in the indiscriminate love of God in the parable, in the Sermon on the Mount. And I think that's that's kind of the crux of it all, you know, is is God a violent God, is God a nonviolent God? Is God a God of merits and rewards, or is God a God of grace? And right. there's so much more about God's grace that I think the inescapable conclusion then is that the parable of the fortune funds is meant to be taken ironically it, it, it teaches us about the kingdom of God by showing us how the world works. This is how the world works. Right. You get, you know, your, exactly. your, your rewards are based on what you, what right. you achieve. Right. And, and if you don't achieve you're you, you know, you're not only left out, you're, yeah. you're thrown out. Right. You, your membership is revoked.
0: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, I think you have it. I think, I mean, I think it's very clear and I think, and I, uh, once we get to the Reformation part, we'll understand a little bit historically maybe why this came about the way it came about.
1: Mm, yeah, and,
0: yeah.
1: Well, it, it's. I think it's 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 troubling to me that I you know I grew up just like everybody else probably who's listening to the podcast hearing this parable preached as a parable of you know commendation for faithful service.
0: Absolutely. Yep.
1: And but if you dig into the parable and really pay attention to the details, the kind of the kind of kingdom that it illustrates is much more like the kingdom of a wealthy tycoon. Mm-hmm. the The kind of God it portrays is much more like a Wall Street financier, mm-hmm. not mm-hmm. a God of mercy and grace. Right. And I can't I can't endorse that. Right. You know, it, it's and so in my mind. You know, again, I think Jesus' point here is he's telling a parable about the way the world works, in order to sort of shock people into realizing, hey, the kingdom of God is very different from this. The kingdom of heaven is very different from this. Mm -hmm. They they all knew that this was the way the world worked. Right. They had experienced it.
0: They experienced it. They are likely the guy that doesn't have very much. Right.
1: Most of them. Most of most of Jesus' hearers would have mm-hmm. been in that day would have been people who were working at a subsistence level most of Matthew's readers even mm-hmm. in even in the late 1st century would still have been mostly subsistence workers and mm-hmm. which means they would work that day to get the denarius that they would take to the market on the way home right. and buy the bread to feed their family that night mm-hmm. you know and um, so they would have they would have they would not have just given this they would they would have been they would have been sort of um i think alerted to the fact that Je- something was up with this parable from the very beginning that <laughs> jesus was talking about these massive fortunes you right. know because this was not part of their reality at all you know people who had massive fortunes were people who were um, colluding
0: were, with the Roman government, who were possibly. colluding with the Roman government
1: and taking massive advantage,
0: exactly of people yes. in order to yes.
1: enrich themselves, yeah. just like today, just you like know?
0: today, and, yeah.
1: and and so, uh, I think I think bells would have been going off, red flags would have been waving for them immediately. And, and unfortunately, because of the way this parable has been sanitized for us in the history of interpretation, right? we don't hear those bells and we don't see those flags.
0: <laughs> right. Exactly. Exactly. And it, it really ties down to understanding of God, which has come to us through the history. I mean, and, and that's really what we have to look at. And I think um, it's really only in our modern and postmodern eras that we can look back and kind of say, oh, that's was based on a, a different God, a different yeah. understanding of God, yeah. an incomplete understanding of yeah, God. Yeah,
1: definitely. Well, we'll look forward to you shedding light on, on that history for us. Thanks. Yeah. Well, we're back and we're going to take a a sort of a deep dive maybe into the history of how this parable has been interpreted, uh, especially through the Reformers, um, to maybe understand how we got to where we are today. So, Christy, what is the background of this passage and the Reformers' use of it?
0: Sure, and I think we need to look back into, even prior to just looking at the parable, is to look at the understanding of who God was and who Jesus was in the Middle Ages. And so... While we view Jesus as a friend and as um, a helper and a companion. They view Jesus as a judge. Mm. Jesus would, and if so, if wow. you, yeah. If you look at the even at the medieval cathedrals, often Jesus oh, is yes. placed up oh. in a triptych. He's he's judging between who's going to make it to heaven and who is going to be sent to hell. And there's very much a sense that Jesus is not approachable. Um, by the average person and that jesus is judging between the good and the bad so this fits into that concept of have i done enough to earn my way i remember
1: the presentation you did for us on the anniversary of the reformation and the the uh, the the carving over the over the cathedral where Jesus is presiding over those who go to yes. heaven and those who go to hell.
0: Yes, and this is not what a
1: frightening image to see every time you came into church. Every
0: time you come into church, and this is the image. Of course, we're talking about a pre-literate society. This is the image of Jesus they have, which of course is partly why in the Roman Catholic tradition the, the cult of saints is perpetuated because you could appeal to these saints. Ah, you could appeal.
1: They're to the these they're the ones you can you can approach. They're right. the approachable ones they're
0: approachable jesus is too far away
1: even mary is approachable
0: even mary is approachable but jesus is the judge wow and so this fits into the context of that understanding of of jesus and so
1: what if what a different world just view just what a different totally different view of god and jesus
0: exactly and so that whole worldview impacts of course then how the reformers have themselves been taught to to understand Jesus. And even though they're even though they're like, oh gosh, uh, we don't wanna buy into this works righteousness, still in their mind, mm. uh, I, I think they haven't gone to that next step of kind of this modern they, interpretation. They can't get
1: away from God as the judge they or never Jesus get away. as the judge. Yeah. And
0: it's obvious to them that when you're looking at this, that Jesus is the master, mm. right? Um, and when Jesus comes back, there'll be this, have you done anything with the talents that I've left you? The talents, per se, are, are still kind of viewed in a monetary sense. I think Alan started off, you know, we tend to think of them in terms of the nature natural abilities. That kind of emerges during the Reformation period. So you oh, see, really? Yeah, so you see kind of an allusion to both sides. Calvin tends to stay back to a more monetary concept of it.
1: Good for him. Um, <laughs> yeah, but
0: others start to move it into the abilities that you can do I saw this in particular with um, Heinrich Bullinger mm. um, uh, reformed um, um, reformed uh, uh, theologian um, but it kind of went back back and forth a little bit depending on on who was talking.
1: Well and you know even I'm thinking I'm thinking even in my as I heard it preached growing up you know it was it was a, people were aware that it was a unit of money. But the real meaning, quote unquote, right. was your abilities and the right. things you can do for are God. Are you doing
0: that, those abilities? And what yeah. are you doing for, for God? So it's it's kind of an interesting balance between there. Um, I think this one does have more of that kind of traditional expectation of the, the saved and the condemned. mm mm-hmm. um, there is an idea allegorically that um, all of those who are given the talents are indeed those who have already been called to Christ. Okay, they are already supposedly saved people. Right. But then that makes sense. So, Calvin, and it doesn't always. But
1: even the even the guy who even the guy who hides it.
0: Yeah, that, what, that's what's so funny. It's it's not clear. It's like they can't quite they can't quite make the parable work. So they'll emphasize <laughs> one aspect or another. Right. But It's like, well, yeah, he's called, but he squandered away what was given to him. But that...
1: So you can squander God's calling.
0: Exactly. But that's the whole thing. And Calvin's like, oh, no, 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 no. So then it becomes...
1: Yeah, I wouldn't think they would want to endorse that.
0: I know. So Calvin's sitting here trying to make sense of, of... Put this together as how one responds to God's call through the Holy Spirit as expected, and yet and yet still has this ability to squander. And he never, in my opinion, he never does it all the way. Never he never resolves quite it. resolves it. Yeah, And so it, it, it sits huh. out there as this problem.
1: That's, a, that's just an enduring tension in,
0: in Calvin's view, I guess. Exactly. And hmm. how, how do I make the pieces work? Um, mostly, mostly they they focus, it, it depends on, on the hope and endurance of, of the first two. It's like they kind of emphasize Mm. talbot emphasizes that and then later on he talks about the guy who doesn't who who doesn't fulfill the the desired desired meaning to uh to invest that that last talent um Mm. so kind of a kind of an interesting tension and it's bullinger then though that goes to that next Step. Remember, he's the one that, that gets that uh, right. that meaning with the context of these are the talents that you have, and then he goes so far to say it's the wicked and the lazy one, and he is he is going to go to hell for it. So you've got in him, he goes up next step, and mind you, he's one of those. He's a he. He's the one who takes uh-huh. over the Zurich Church after the death of Olexingli. Uh-huh. So, and then Bullinger's going to be the one that's going to help press on towards that more. I guess you would say extreme version of Calvinism that oh, yeah. that pushes in right? or, or, or reformed tradition. Right. Um,
1: yeah. I mean, even I'm, I'm looking here at the text, you know, uh, it does say wicked and lazy slave. Mm-hmm. It does say that literally.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. And Bullinger is the one that pushes that huh. as being evidence of, of, of not uh, almost like they are being um, hypocrites. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mm-hmm. would say it was good use. Wow. So,
1: well, that's quite that's quite an astounding backdrop. Backdrop to, I'm sure, what is a fascinating reading of the reformers in terms of how they approach this parable.
0: Right. Well, and it, you know, that's really what comes to us. It it, it moves all the way through that medieval period yeah. up to the present, and it doesn't. It only in the recent modern times is it really question saying, "Wait, this doesn't." This doesn't mm. work with the broader context of the Bible. So even though Calvin would see himself that I'm trying to put together this whole systematic theology that makes sense, there's still these pieces where he doesn't dig into, it's still this desire to look at mm. this too literally, I think.
1: Well, you know, one of the things I have, I have observed uh, in my studies is you can find some inconsistency in just about every theologian. Absolutely. And that includes me, <laughs> you know, uh, that none of us is thoroughly consistent in our theology. Um, and maybe it goes with what we said something about last week. You know, it's really hard to to reconcile everything, you know, that you find in Scripture and all the theological um uh, emphases.
0: I think it's supposed to be that way. Yeah. I honestly think yeah. that's why God put it this way. Well, we're, so we're, that we're, we're still constantly wrestling. grappling yeah. with it, so we're constantly yeah. asking questions. I think when you come by and you're like confident that everything works perfectly, I think that's your big fallacy. I think, I think that's the error in itself.
1: So I guess, I guess for the reformers, then they had no trouble seeing Jesus as the master who, who, who. Was, was rewarding people based on what they achieved and who was uh, casting well, this, this, <laughs> this lazy and wicked servant out into the outer darkness?
0: I mean, yes and no. I, obviously, they don't want to push on the works righteousness, right? They're responding out of the Holy Spirit in this. So it's a real, it's a balance. Uh-huh. Um, so it's, it's, it's what you're called to do it's it's that calling of being in the elect and yet how you respond through the holy spirit in that elect but it's still really the work of god doing it so what a strange space right right um,
1: so so what happened to the guy who who hit his hit his hit his talent did the holy spirit drop the ball or did he drop the ball
0: <laughs> exactly i don't know i i don't know i couldn't that's where i couldn't find that Maybe I didn't dig far enough, but I couldn't find mm-hmm. the logical conclusion. Mm-hmm. That's why I feel like they they don't have a full grasp on how right. this totally fits in logically.
1: Well, the theological implications of this reading are really profound.
0: They are. They are. Um, I I want to share with our um, our listeners though what I found to be the most interesting take. Yeah. Um, which is how the women read this.
1: No, wait, there were women reformers. Yes who were writing and preaching and teaching? Yes. In the 16th yes. century.
0: So there's kind of two sets, right? There's the Anabaptist reformers. Okay, These that makes sense. they are fully involved. They're right. fully No,
1: I, Yeah, that makes sense.
0: But there are also Lutheran and Reformed women reformers who, they take a back seat. They recognize they are, I'm sorry, ladies, the weaker sex. They identify themselves, and yet they are writing. They are usually preaching to other women, but they are preaching, and they feel that they are called.
1: I'm, I guess I guess this is where my my late twentieth century seminary education failed me because I have never heard of oh, yes. of women uh, involved yes. in the Reformation. That is amazing.
0: Yes, there are um, quite a few. One of the one of the probably the most prolific writers, um, Agilabombro. Brumbach, and she's a Lutheran reformer. She is well-published. She's dialoguing actually a lot um, with the English reformers. She is dialoguing. She's a big fan of Luther and Melanchthon, and she is writing all kinds of things. Another well-known one is Katharina Schipz-Zell, who's known for her great hymn book that she wrote and published. Um, And she is the wife of of a reformer, but she is also a legitimate reformer herself and in her writings. Um, and then I learned of a couple additional, uh, more reformed traditions, ladies, Marie uh, Dentiere and Rachel Spate. Now, Rachel Spate's about a century later, but all four of these women talk about this parable.
1: Wow. And for cool. them,
0: Yes. And for them, this is the... I should not bury the talent God has given me. This is a call to them that these are their natural-born talents and that they are called, yes, and that they are called to share them.
1: Wow. So the women use this to support their active role in in the church. Mm -hmm. That is cool. Isn't
0: that cool? (laughs) Yes. So it's kind of on the old style one, but Mm. instead of saying, you know, he shouldn't have buried it, like, they were he was forced to bury it because of fear and that was improper use that that's a call to arms that we need to be using our natural talents
1: no matter what yep. no matter what opposition may come right. they're going to they're going to use their talents they're not going to bury their talents exactly yeah. they're not wow. going to be
0: telling their talents and so huh. what an interesting take on that
1: yeah that is <laughs> Uh, you know, I, I have to say that's one of the biggest surprises yet for me.
0: <laughs> Isn't that fun? I know, yeah. super, super fun. So it kind of gives you a didn't different look on it. Um, um, that they uh, yes, um, they they were called to be public preachers, prophets, and religious writers, and not just. I might add. Um, not just as a special revelation but that this was natural of of women as a whole.
1: Oh wow. That it wasn't just a special calling step. for them. This exactly. was for women as a whole. Boy, were th- they were about 350 years uh, ahead of their time, yes, weren't they? Yes, they
0: were. Yes, they were. So pretty cool. <laughs>
1: You know, one of the questions I had, Christy, when I looked at this was, you know, that the Reformers definitely reacted against the system of merits in the Catholic Church. That was something that was just built into the structure of Catholicism in that day for sure. I guess it's arguable as to whether it still can be a part of Catholicism today. Obviously, we can't generalize because there are there are varieties of Catholicism all over the world. Um, was there you know and and i talked about the tension between that view of the merits and and the rewards and being faithful versus the teachings of jesus in the sermon on the mount did they have any awareness of the tension there that kind of tension at all between between the idea of merits and the parable of the talents as it's usually interpreted and and the idea of just unconditional grace
0: Oh, i I think they were aware of it and that's why they were trying to They were trying to to make sense of it, but yet they weren't to this kind of next level of taking it out of kind of this little context. I think it had been, I think they had jumped on so far. I mean, it wasn't until you were were able to to place it into the context of the other and Matthew's purpose and really thinking about the kingdom of God as a whole. And I'm not sure why they never got there, but they Mm. never did get there in some kind of modern sense. Well,
1: you know... (laughs) The move of, of taking a passage of Scripture ironically is kind of a scary one, mm-hmm. even today. It is. And, and in that day, it probably would have been seen as blasphemous or something. You know, you were, you were, you were trampling on the Word of God or something like that because, you know, the, they were so into literal interpretation. Mm-hmm. And, and yet, I would argue that if Jesus intended it as an ironical parable, then that's the way we should read it.
0: I think so. Absolutely. Absolutely.
1: <laughs> they just didn't have. They didn't have the space. They didn't have the the concept that that was something that they could do. Exactly.
0: And yeah. I think the same can be said of folks that tend to be very literate today. They just mm-hmm. aren't in that space to even understand. Oh, that's true. The, the the literary genius and the literary implications of these things. You know, they're just they're just not there.
1: I preached a series on these parables nine years ago in my church, in in another church, and um, one of my elders was married to a man who's Catholic, and they would go to both services every Sunday. And uh, I baptized one of his boys, um, and <laughs> I don't remember which parable it was. I don't remember if it was this one or the one about the wedding garment, but after church, he came up to me and sort of rebuked me for for corrupting his children. <laughs> so that kinda of shows how you know how 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 big a deal it is for some people that you're willing to, to read the Bible in an ironical sense. Mm-hmm. In a sense other than just the face the surface the surface meaning exactly. of the words.
0: Exactly. And yet that's I think why God's put it out there to for us to grapple with Mm -hmm. um, and to grapple with, really grapple with. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think you said it well last week and maybe other times we've talked about parables. If it doesn't ring true, if there's something that just seems wrong, you need to read it again. Um, And I think it's really, really easy to just take that surface level uh, assumption or what we've heard before without actually really digging into what what is that piece of this that doesn't work?
1: Yeah, it sounds like the reformers were in a space where they weren't even allowed to see the red flags or hear the bells going off like I think Jesus first audience and even Matthew's community would have
0: I think so too yeah. I think they had a particular and this parable and I don't know that that's always true but this parable in particular seems to be ingrained with just a basic understanding like there's there's clarity that was is there that they don't really push beyond. Yeah. Yeah.
1: All right. Thank you.
0: Yeah. Hey, we're back. Um, I wanted to start our kind of general conversation with just to the extent that this parable is part of our tradition and um, and kind of embedded in it. And, you know, I, I mentioned er- earlier the well done, good and faithful servant. I mean, we we use that all the time. We can find it on our gravestones. Um, it's become part of this this language that we talk about. And yet here we are referencing this parable that we are now questioning um, its original interpretation.
1: Yeah, I mean, you know, and I, I think that's kind of the hook that that keeps us wanting to read the parable literally. You know, who of us hasn't either participated in the retirement ceremony or witnessed the retirement ceremony of a beloved colleague or pastor? And, you know, that was a, just a fundamental part of it. You know, and, and there, are, there are these, I mean, some of these people are great saints to us, and they hold a dear space in our hearts. Uh, Alan Anderson was was a mentor to me, and and um, really just he was. It's hard for me to put in words what he meant to me, and you know um, he would be one that you would want to say, "Well done, good and faithful servant." And yet, <laughs> um, you know, are, are we really are we really going to use those words? I mean, we're taking the words out of context if we if we're doing exactly.
0: That. And does does it does it by using it? Obviously, we don't mean to 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 justify um, this kind of abusive use of, of wealth. That's not our intention when we use it, right? Is it okay to use it and assume we're meaning something else and appropriate something different to it, or do we just simply need to move to a different a different accolade for somebody?
1: I think that's a hard one, you know, because cause I think this is where the parable is just, I mean, it is part of the foundation of our religious heritage. We, we And it would be like removing, you know, one of the pillars of the foundation <laughs> for a lot of us, you know, digging it up out of, out of ground and uprooting it. It would be a lot of work to to get away from that. And um, I don't know, maybe it's a little bit like uh, Christmas, you know, Christmas originated in, in one context and it took on a different yeah. meaning in a, in the Christian context. And of course it, it, today it has many different meanings. You know, for some people it's just a holiday where you spend a lot of money and for other people, you know, it is a high and holy day where you, where you remember, God's greatest gift, you know. Um, so, uh, you know, I think, obviously, um, re- religion is culturally based. All of our religion is culturally based because you can't get away from the fact that religion is a human thing. It is, it is our response to the divine. It is our response to God's revelation, and it's, our respo- it's, our, it's not only our understanding, but it's our response to, to our experiences of God. And um, so you, you can't separate the fact that there's a cultural element in Christianity, and maybe this is just part of our Christian culture. You know, it has been mm-hmm. so embedded. I, right. I, as if we can, you know, if we can, if we can recognize what we're doing, you know, that right. we're taking that set of words and using it in a way very different mm-hmm. from from, this, its, context. from mm-hmm. its context in Jesus' parable. That's not the. I don't think Jesus was endorsing um, the actions of these men who went out and gained, you know, they already had five huge fortunes and they gained five more huge fortunes or they had two huge fortunes and gained two more used fortunes, probably by taking advantage of people. I don't think, I can't envision Jesus commending that. Mm -hmm. And so um, that kind of greed, that kind of uh, abuse of people, that kind of objectification and using people simply purely for commercial gain. I I can't see Jesus uh, saying, well done, good and faithful servant to that.
0: I can't either.
1: But having said that, you know that's not what we mean when we say it to someone no. a beloved colleague or pastor exactly. or who retires exactly we mean you have served this church you have served us with love and 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 grace and and yeah. and faithfulness and we want to honor you for that mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and maybe that's just one of those things where we just we just chalk it up to this is this is a part of our culture. This is part, the part of, of our the culture, our the Christian church. culture, right, right, right now. It is a part of our Christian right. culture. It's a part of our church culture, our church heritage, mm-hmm. and it's taken on a co- a whole different life, a whole, yeah, yeah. completely yeah. different from from the setting of the parable.
0: Yeah, I, I agree. Well, and you know, as I'm thinking about this parable and in the context that these women took it, which is so remarkable, it gives it yet a different a different twist as well. Yeah. And while they're still kind of going on the old fashioned one, that they're using it as a, as a call to not bury talents, I think is in, incredible. I, I keep thinking today of when I systems we are talking a lot about systems, um, systemic racism. Mm-hmm. What about systemic, um, uh, uh gender, um, Gender systems, you know, systemic oh, yeah. systems where women systemic
1: patriarchalism exactly where yeah.
0: women aren't where women aren't allowed to uh, to be active. I mean, I think one of the biggest systems problems are churches that aren't allowing women in the ministry, and, and, there yeah. and there are
1: many of them in the United States today. Yeah. Exactly. So, and uh, and even more across the world.
0: Exactly. So when you see it in those light, it's like, oh well, this parable for those women had a, a different meaning, right. in that one that was also. Um, I think, central to one of the bigger problems that we're facing as a right. church as a whole. Right. Yeah.
1: Right. Now, you know, one of the things I think about with this is, um, and I, I, I Christy, you put it, does, does Jesus have different faces or does, and we might say, does God have different faces? You know, the image of the, if we, if we read this parable literally as God or Jesus is the master, then the image of, of God is one that's harsh exacting and way, ready to cast the wicked and lazy servants into outer darkness. And, you know, we are a people in the Presbyterian world, we are a people shaped fundamentally by grace. That is the the bedrock of our theological tradition. And yet, I know so many people who um, still harbor maybe a a fear or a suspicion that that really is somehow true of god
0: why is god punishing me what mm-hmm. you know i haven't and, and we talk oh. we talk about that all all the time and yet it's still there i think it's there because it's historically been there even though we've said wait there's there's a there's a piece wrong with that but i think we see it in traditions around us and i think because of even a parable like this that we have read wrong so long. You know, and I think a lot of people today still see two faces, two faces of mm-hmm. God. And that's a problem. Yeah. But God is, and this is the thing, God is who God has revealed God's self to be, which through the Bible is does have a consistency. But yes. you have to look at the whole of the Bible tradition. That's right. And that's why this that's is right. hard. Um, because we want to pull things out mm-hmm. and we want to sprinkle about um, little quotations without looking at the entirety of who God and God's um, redemptive mission. Let's put it that way. If you look at that entirety of the scripture.
1: The story of Scripture, the the story, yeah. Of I scripture. mean and, and, and you know what's easier to take a little snippet and have a devotional on it or to spend the hours actually reading through the Bible? Probably, I mean, more than once, really. It takes more than once to, to really uh, begin to see that, that consistency of God. Exactly. You know, as I've said before, you know, the fundamental revelation of God in the Bible is what takes place in the Hebrew Bible. Uh, the Lord, the Lord, gracious and compassionate, full of steadfast love and faithfulness. You know, that is the fundamental truth of right. God's being right. from start to finish.
0: Exactly. And, exactly. and
1: unfortunately, though, I, I mean, I still have, I still have, I have run into plenty of people in Presbyterian churches who, who will jokingly say, well, I'm not going to make it into heaven or you know people like me, you know, God doesn't God doesn't want people like me. But I and I think there's but I think there's a secret fear under, under, underlying that that I'm not good enough. I and think that
0: absolutely still exists and I think I think part of it has made its way into pop culture, which is one of my big concerns, um, how pop culture works and how we read things on social media and things that that continue to affirm that particular interpretation of God. And I just think it just it's that continual um, work and reminder of this loving God mm-hmm. of hope and joy. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, I, I just think they hear other things. They do. I think some of our fundamentalists who are loud mm-hmm. tend to uh, tend to broadcast these things in this very loud way. Mm-hmm. Um, and and they they take over as sound bites. Even if we don't believe them, they make us doubt.
1: I, and I'm always amazed at what people will believe. But yet, when those of us who are out there trying to get the message of God's grace out there, they just kind of yawn and yeah. just say, ho-hum, you know. And it's not ho-hum. It's like amazing. It's right. it's it, right. it makes the good news truly good news.
0: One of my one of my little pet peeves right now is the current obsession with karma. Um, and I hear people respond to the world, oh, well, she's going to get what's coming to her because mm. she did this bad thing. And I don't know why karma has made its way into our society as part of pop culture and that this is the way the world works as opposed to. Grace. Grace, and yeah. forgiveness. Yeah. And I think it's a tragedy, and yet I see it over and over, even in people that claim to be very devout, because mm-hmm. they're not paying attention to what, the, what God's message is. They're not paying attention to what God forgives. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's a cop-out, really.
1: Well, I, I mean, I think, and I think, unfortunately, there is a gap between what we would call the theology of the Reformed tradition and the actual beliefs that many of our people hold, mm-hmm. and that's kind of the challenge that we all face: is to try to help bring people along.
0: Right.
1: Uh, and and uh, you know, I, it was funny because um, I mentioned Alan Anderson. Well, his wife, Maxine Riley, was also a very close friend of mine, and uh, she was in her eighties when I was her pastor. And one day, I, I'd been the pastor there about six years, I guess, and she said, "You know what? You have you have opened my eyes." To the meaning of grace more than anyone else, mm-hmm. and I, I don't know that it was me, but yet I was astounded that here's a woman who had been involved in church, in the church, from childhood, all of her life, and in her 80s, she finally got the message of grace. What are we, you know? So I, I'm like, what are we doing wrong? What are we well, missing out on that that people can people can can I mean, she taught Sunday school. She did everything. I mean, what are we missing right. out on that people like that can, can, can go their whole lives and, and miss out on something so basic to our understanding of, of the faith?
0: But how many young people that they go through confirmation and they have this view of what the church people are, and when they make mistakes that and choices in their lives they feel that don't fit within the context of the church, they drop, drop away. Mm-hmm. And, um, mm-hmm. I see or, that happen or all the time.
1: Or they're, they're, they're kind of, um, not shunned in a formal sense, but in a, in a, in an informal sense. In, in you an know?
0: informal sense, or yeah. even they, in their They minds. get the looks.
1: They get the looks.
0: The looks. <laughs> and so how do we embrace them of, mm-hmm. you are welcome here. These doors mm-hmm. are open for you. Mm-hmm. We love you. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's something that they grapple with. And some of them never do come back. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so uh, that's always been a big fear of mine. And, and,
1: and, and that breaks my heart. I mean, because I know, I know that most churches have some people who would, would probably um, have qualms about being so accepting of someone who breaks, breaks the norms, mm-hmm. right? but yet i think most of the people in our churches you know especially someone who's grown up in the church you know who's 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 a child of the church so to speak mm-hmm. if they whatever they do you know most of the people in the church are going to embrace them but it's that it's that it's that vocal minority or right. or the ones that may, they may not say anything but they give them the looks the looks and okay. that's what stings and that's what stays
0: with them and that's what stays with them and yeah. so um yeah, they they live that life um, feeling feeling not whole.
1: Yeah. So, well, I continue I continue to hammer on grace consistently yes. because I, I I know that it's needed.
0: It is. It is, and 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 I do likewise. I I just thinking about this parable, which is 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 so hard, or has been done. So I think if we come at this with this and this understanding and we we preach this i actually think we'll open up a lot of ears because i think it's the kind of message that says oh he's going to do another Mm -hmm. another it's the
1: parable of the talents again i can tune out i can tune out (laughs) and if we
0: can get them to listen Mm -hmm. i think it'll open ears and i think they'll remember it and when they remember it then they start to internalize it and that's when it that's when it kind of moves out. One of the so things, kind of you know,
1: I, I took a cue from a couple of guys who, who work with businesses, Chip and Dan Heath. They're, they're connected with Fast Company and Magazine, and they have a book called Made to Stick, and they talk about how some ideas stick and how others don't. And uh, one of the things they said, you know, to do is, is, to, is, if you want your message to stick, make it unexpected.
0: Yeah, Yeah, and this one can do that. Yeah, definitely. I (laughs) hope so. I hope so,
1: yeah. Well, thank you, Christy. It's been fun today.
0: It has been
1: fun. That's our podcast for today. If you heard something that was helpful to you, please subscribe to our podcast and tell your friends about us.
0: It's our hope and prayer that our time together might bear fruit in your ministry as you build up the body of Christ.
1: We hope you'll tune in next week. And in the meantime, let's keep serving each other as we together listen listen for for the the word.
0: word.